Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ted Love. Ted is the CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, known as GBT for short. The company, based in South San Francisco, is on the cusp of bringing forward the first innovative disease-modifying medicine for sickle cell disease ever. GBT has run a pivotal clinical trial in 274 patients, gotten the results published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and is in the midst of filing a rolling submission of a new drug application to the FDA. The medicine is called Voxelator, or Vox for short. It's a once-daily oral pill. If things move on schedule, GBT should be cleared to market this therapy in the first half of 2020. It's hard to overstate how important this new medicine will be. This is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, so let's cover some of the basic stats compiled by the CDC. It is estimated that sickle cell affects approximately 100,000 Americans. Sickle cell occurs among about one out of every 365 black or African-American births. Sickle cell occurs among about one out of every 16,000 Hispanic American births. And about one in 13 black or African-American babies is born with the sickle cell trait that they could pass down to future generations. This is a chronic disease that causes severe anemia, fatigue, pain, strokes, and premature death. It disproportionately dishes out its suffering in the African-American community in the U.S. Imagine trying to live with this constant burden of pain and fatigue. Sickle cell is unquestionably a big drag on human productivity, and any drug that can get a good number of those 100,000 patients back on their feet and living a normal life has a viable argument to make in the world of health economics. Now, in this episode, as usual, I start out by asking Ted about his early life experiences and key career junctures that led him to this renaissance moment in the treatment of sickle cell. In the second half of the conversation, we cover the science, the business, and some of the societal access issues that GBT will have to address to make this product as successful as it could be. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? You're not alone. One venture capitalist at a top five pharmaceutical company said that the quotes that she hears on this show are often so good, she wants to pull her car over and write them down. The audience for this show almost tripled from year one to year two. I expect more big things in year three with a slate of outstanding guests lined up. There is a great way to show your support and to raise your company's brand awareness among the innovative thought leaders who are listening to the long run. Sponsor this show. Ask me about sponsorship opportunities. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do to invest in quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a sharing license. And when you do that, you'll be able to read and share my writing, plus in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers who I edit 
such as Stacy Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Ted Love on The Long Run. So we don't talk enough about sickle cell disease in the medical community or in the health science media, but this is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month in September, so hopefully that will help educate some people about this disease. And the good news is that this is the best time ever in the treatment of sickle cell, hands down. We're seeing some actual innovation in the pipeline for the first time in in my lifetime. And one of the trailblazers in the field is Global Blood Therapeutics, or GBT. And with me today is the CEO, Ted Love. Welcome, Ted, and thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure. So, Ted, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I've had you on my guest list for this show for some time, uh, and I just haven't gotten around to talking about sickle cell. So if National Sickle Cell Awareness is the the prod that I need, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and, and, and But you guys have had a, a very busy year with uh, getting your rolling NDA submission to through the FDA uh, for Voxelator? Am I saying that correctly? You are saying it correctly. Voxelator. And you can also call it Vox if you'd like. Voxelator, Vox. Okay. Uh, So you've got an application uh, rolling there at the FDA. You got the pivotal study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. You're scaling up to go commercial with this first uh, treatment for sickle cell in many, many years, hopefully first half of 2020. Is that all right? That is exactly right. Okay, so there's there's some cool science and there's some business and there's some societal issues to discuss as we get through this show. Um, and I, I look forward to asking you about those things. But as you know, like with this show, I like to set the, the contextual table here with a little bit about the person. Who are you? How did you come to this point in innovation in sickle cell? So, Ted, um, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? I grew up uh, in a big family, uh, number six of eight kids uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, Had a real interest in science and math very early and um, recognized that uh, one of the most respected guys uh, in our little African-American community um, was was our doctor. And uh, I, uh, at a very young age, decided I wanted to be a physician. I had no idea that my career would take the trajectory it's taking, but it was an interest uh, really in helping patients that drove me to want to use science and medicine uh, to help patients. Wow. So big family, eight kids. Uh, eight what kids. Did your parents, what did your parents do? My um, parents uh, were not a highly educated. Uh, my father had a fourth grade education. My mother had a sixth grade education. And my mother really uh, was busy in the home taking care of all the kids. Uh, My father uh, did a combination of farming. Uh, We grew up on a farm, and he also worked on Redstone Arsenal uh, in a a warehouse where he helped, you know, essentially manage the warehouse. Huntsville. Now, when you say that, that, uh, I think of the NASA. They they have some investment in science and technology and and a university. was that part of, like, were you exposed to that part of town or no? Uh, I was later in life. Um, uh, initially, I grew up in the countryside. 
And when I was uh, in ninth grade, we moved inside the city limits and I changed high schools and I began to interact with kids uh, whose parents were um, more involved in the high tech kind of science part of the city. But my original background was really kind of in the countryside, uh, interacting uh, with people that really were removed from that. But you're right, NASA is there. Um, many companies uh, in the defense industry are in Huntsville. I actually think Huntsville probably has um, one of the highest proportion of PhDs of any city uh, in the country. Uh, but that wasn't really my world when I was growing up. Was this uh, a highly African-American neighborhood or a town, like a segregated area like most places of our country? Yeah, I was born in 1959. And when I was born, uh, as you know, uh, schools were legally separated, uh, segregated. And uh, uh, I uh, really didn't start going to integrated schools until sixth grade. Sixth grade, by law, uh, the schools were, were integrated. And uh, that's the first time I started to have classmates uh, that were white. Well, this is really interesting because, you know, people think of Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. That changed all that. Now, actually, no. <laughs> when you're talking no. six, six, sixth grade in Alabama, if I do the math here, this would have been early 70s? Uh, it would have been, let's see here. So going back to me being in sixth grade, I was born in 59. So I would say 65 uh, would have been me being in first grade. And then, um, um, is that right? Did I do that right? 59, 6, um, 65, I'd be in first grade and then give me five more years for sixth grade. Yeah, yeah. So 1965, um, things, you know, you're, you're entering school. Things are starting to change. The civil rights uh, movement is on then. Um, now, your family, you, a lot of kids. Uh, was there, I mean, when you say big families, I think of like a lot of sibling rivalry <laughs> competing for, you know, like the best grades or the best athletic exploits or, you know, mom and dad's attention or whatever. What, what was that dynamic like for you? Well, we were competitive, uh, but uh, one of the uh, uh, realities when you have eight siblings is that there's a huge spread of age. Uh, uh, so my older siblings were in many ways kind of like um, people that looked out for me. Uh, and my younger siblings were, were people that I kind of looked at, although they were only two younger than me. But, um, yeah, we were competitive uh, with each other. Most of the competition uh, uh, revolved around uh, sports, uh, physical things. We didn't really compete. Uh, that much about school, although I was competitive with my classmates. I didn't really focus on competing with my siblings because they weren't in my class uh, ever. Okay. Now, but you said a couple of important things. You switched schools uh, to an integrated school in sixth grade and then again to a different high school in ninth grade. Where along the way did you uh, catch the bug for science or medicine? Yeah, I think it's probably about 10. It was before the schools were integrated. Um, I don't think that had anything to do with my decision uh, to, 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 to think about a career in, in medicine and science. And the only other career I thought about was engineering because that did kind of fit. And that was something, um, you know, going back to Huntsville, you know, there were a lot of engineers in Huntsville. So that was something that I was aware that was going on around me. You know, I think one of the 
one of the challenges for young black kids growing up in that kind of community is that you really don't have many role models. Uh, you really don't have parents that even have been exposed uh, to the kind of things that my kids are being exposed to. So I think many kids from that environment, quite frankly, are limited just in terms of their imagination of, of what they might do. Um, so I think one of the things that did help me is that I had a lot of imagination. I, I did at least imagine that I might do what uh, our family doctor did and I might do what some of these engineers in Huntsville that I didn't really interact with did. But the key thing for me is that I ended up going off to an amazing college. And that's really when the world of possibilities began to open up for me. But in Huntsville, quite frankly, it's a pretty limited environment, uh, particularly the the poor African-American community that I came from. So you went to Haverford College for undergraduate, uh, Pennsylvania, small elite liberal arts school uh, far away in the north. I mean, how did that come to be for you? So again, I mean, I didn't have a lot of resources. So when I was ready to go to college, I did what I usually do, which is I went to the library and I got some books. And there were these books like uh, Barron's Guides to Colleges, uh, The Yale Insider's Guide to Colleges. I read as many books as I could. And it was fairly easy to figure out, you know, the top schools in the country academically. They were, they were ranked. Uh, and, and I also wanted to get a mix of bigger schools and smaller schools and safety schools. So Haverford got on my list as a smaller school that would be competitive academically with any school in the country. And I was very lucky uh, to get in there and, um, uh, and, attend, and, and attend school. But I looked at, you know, the big Ivy Leagues as well as uh, the smaller elite schools like Haverford. Now, what was it about Haverford once you got there that was so life-changing? Well, Haverford was a great fit for me in, in, a couple of, in a couple of ways. One is that I'm a very values-driven person, and Haverford is all about values. In fact, one of the things that attracted me was the college's uh, emphasis on the honor code uh, as a way that we would self-govern uh, how we interact with others, but also how we would govern our expectations. So many of our exams, most of our exams, uh, were unproctored. Um, uh, uh, many of my exams were take-home exams, and it was you know your personal responsibility to make sure that you were operating within you know the boundaries of integrity. And that was that was that was something that was very natural for me, but it was really. Uh, defining for me to really define my personality completely uh, kind of in that period from 18 to 22 while I was in college. Where do you think those values came from? Was your family religious? My family was a a bit religious. We weren't super religious, but we were very values driven. I mean, I think uh, my parents were very clear on uh, uh, us staying out of trouble uh, and even though there were a lot of kids, you know, we, we, we did not get into trouble. Uh, uh, my, my parents were also, you know, very clear on if you're going to do well in this world, you need to operate with discipline, uh, with integrity. Um, I got involved in student leadership when I was uh, in high school 
And um, uh, it was important to me to lead in a certain way that people felt good that I was trying to actually uh, do things that were for the benefit of all of us, not just my own personal agenda. So Haverford was a very comfortable transition for me in terms of really holding myself accountable uh, for a very high level of behavior. That's really interesting, not just intellectual challenge. You were looking for uh, something that um, would help you develop your character. That, that's exactly right. So this is the private liberal arts school, you have a family of eight kids. Did you get some scholarships? I did. I, there's no way I could have afforded Haverford. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that you know my wife and I have been very committed to being philanthropic is because I was the beneficiary of, of lots of uh, scholarship and financial aid support. Otherwise, I would not have gotten through Haverford or Yale Medical School. Okay. Okay. So did you decide to be pre-med there at Haverford or were we just kind of like exploring lots of different electives? I did not. I, you know, I was committed day one. I was pre-med and uh, I watched many people who were pre-med decide that uh, they might want an alternative. <laughs> uh, but I, I hung in there. It was, it was, you know, obviously challenging at, at certain junctures, but I got through it and ultimately I did very well and ended up at Yale. But um, no, I went into the school uh, very clear that I wanted to go into medicine. Okay, so you go to Yale Medical School, uh, and I know after that you did a um, your residency and, and a cardiology fellowship at MGH. So, right, exactly. Great institutions. I mean, what were you thinking? Was how did you imagine your career unfolding in those years? Well, I mean, I think you know one of the things I, I, I look back on is I've always loved learning. I've I've always learn loved understanding things and particularly when I got to Haverford I could see the power in understanding something very very thoroughly uh, and when you really understand something very well you can uh, use that information uh, to innovate uh, you can use that information to uh, uh, to communicate, you can use that information to imagine how things might be different. But it really starts with a powerful and deep understanding of what's going on. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed in my career is learning something well and then taking that information and applying it in different areas, really using analogies uh, from disparate, disparate areas to innovate um, uh, uh, beyond what people have done in the past. Well, medical school is good for that. I mean, you got to take a, cert a lot of biology and chemistry and, uh, and then work your way up through like all your clinical rounds and actually treating people. I mean, it's, it's a great all around education. It, it was fantastic for that. So, okay. So you're, you're on track. It looks like to become a cardiologist, like a practicing physician. Is that what you were thinking that you would do? <laughs> That's generally what this training that is for, is originally, right? <laughs> that's right. That was my original intent was to become a practicing physician. And quite frankly, when I went to Yale, my intent really was to go back to Huntsville and be a practicing physician likely in my community. Um, there was a lot of uh, pressure, however, on someone like me to think about a career in academia. People would say to me, you know, you're – 
you're really the kind of person that shouldn't just go back to Huntsville and practice medicine. You should really be at one of the major universities and, and be a leader. So I kind of got uh, reshuffled uh, in my thinking uh, to thinking more about an academic career. Along the lines of physician scientist, like someone with a lab as well as treats patients? You, you just you just named it. Uh, in fact, back when, I'm sure this is not how people think about it today, but back when I was in academic medicine uh, in the late 80s, uh, we used to talk about the triple threat. That's how you'd become head of a department or dean of a major medical center is you'd be a good clinician, uh, you'd be a solid administrator, and you'd be a distinguished researcher. So I had a lab at Harvard. Uh, I was trying to do cutting-edge research. Um, I had obviously spent time training to, to be a quality physician, uh, delivering care, and my path was to take on more and more administrative responsibility to become that triple threat in academia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then something changed. You ended up going to biotech. Yeah, and I, I didn't see it coming. Um, the, the way that actually happened is that the person that I most uh, admired at Harvard at the time was a man by the name of Ed Haber. He was um, head of the Division of Cardiology at the Mass General. And Ed um, uh, called me in his office one day and explained to me that he was leaving MGH to take a position to become president of research and development at what became Bristol-Myers Squibb. And uh, he also told me that he thought that someone like me uh, could be a real asset uh, to a company like Bristol-Myers Squibb. And that was really the first time I thought, well, I might do something different than, say, in academic medicine. Uh, And um, while I didn't go to Bristol-Myers Squibb, I did begin a conversation with several uh, companies, specifically Merck, um, a company that used to be called Syntex here in California, uh, and and Genentech, and ended up deciding that uh, Genentech was the most exciting place for me to go, and 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 the rest is history. How old were you when this uh, conversation was happening? Uh, I think I was about 32, 33 years old. Uh, I went to Genentech in 1992, so thinking that through, I would have been um, about 30, about about 34. And how did the folks at MGH react when uh, they got the news that, um, hey, I, I'm moving out to this West Coast biotech company, Genentech? Not good, uh, <laughs> in general, <laughs> honestly. Uh, uh, there were... Um, people who felt that uh, I had a promising career in academia and that it was disappointing that I would, you know, give up uh, uh, that. There, there had not, I don't think there'd ever been an African-American full professor at Harvard Medical School. And I think some people thought maybe I could pull that off. Um, uh, but, 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 but in the end, um, there were people like John Potts, who was head of medicine uh, at the Mass General, and actually John Potts was on the board of directors of Genentech. And John understood that I um, wanted to try to use my background and information in a more creative way than I could, than I could at, at Harvard, at, 
at the Mass General. So he was he was very supportive uh, in the end. But there were a number of people that felt that I was, uh, if you will, going to the dark side uh, by going to industry. But uh, I obviously don't see it that way and think I've had a great career in helping a lot of people uh, from, from, from this position. And what tipped the balance in favor of Genentech? Um, uh, Genentech, in my view, was as excellent as Harvard, uh, as excellent as the Mass General. I was really focused on making sure that I didn't step downward in terms of the integrity of people around me who could push me, who I could push, uh, who I could collaborate with to do breakthrough things. So I knew I had that going for me at the Mass General, and I really wanted to make sure that I went to an institution where the caliber uh, of people and the quality uh, of effort and achievements was was lateral. And I, and I still, to this day, think Genentech is... Uh, was was just an extraordinary, intellectually challenging, hard-driving environment. Um, and I grew up there very quickly uh, and had to transition to a different, you know, kind of work. Uh, but it was the intensity and, and, and the expectations being high was a very natural fit for me. Yeah, you know, and I, I look at those years, the 90s, uh, into, I, I guess, around 2000. You were there for how long? I was there for a little over six years. Okay, uh, but this was these were uh, years of clinical development of you know the famous cancer drugs Rituxan, Herceptin, Avastin. Uh, there were some other drugs there too that you know uh, um, that weren't as big hits uh, in in autoimmune conditions. Yeah. You worked on those too, so you, you got a, a, right. a breadth of experience. Uh, and obviously, I got I got amazing experience at Genentech. I, I mean, I got amazing experience and. And I can say with a strong degree of pride, uh, we saved a lot of people's lives. We saved a lot of people's lives. Do you like listening to this podcast? How would you like your company's brand name mentioned on this show with thousands of biotech leaders listening in carefully every other week? Ask me about sponsorship opportunities. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Another alternative to support quality independent reporting on the biotech industry is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. You can get an individual subscription or a company license that comes with sharing rights. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. So how did you end up leaving Genentech? Now, was this when you went to your, get your first CEO job, Nuvello? It, it was not. Uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the, so we've talked about a lot of the wonderful things about Genentech. It was, it, was, it, was, it was amazing for me in terms of learning how to uh, understand uh, the potential of making a drug and moving a drug through the various phases of development, through the Food and, food and Drug Administration, even commercializing. I learned all of that very well at Genentech. But what I didn't learn at Genentech was how would you build a company from scratch? And uh, the position that I took um, when I left Genentech was a very senior position at a company that became known as Theravance. And the, the, the most attractive thing about that company in many ways was Roy Vagelos uh, of Merck fame, 
uh, was uh, the chairman and was very actively involved and actually personally recruited me uh, to leave Genentech and create this new company that we envisioned would be a big pharma one day uh, here based on the West Coast. So um, so the, the key thing here was, again, getting with outstanding people, with outstanding track records, enormous quality, high expectations, and learning in that environment how you go from an idea really to creating a company. So that, and I wanted to do that before I took on a CEO role. Um, it was after um, uh, spending uh, a couple of years at Theravance, raising a lot of money, building that company significantly, that I took on my first job with George Rathman uh, to try to be a CEO of a company for the first time. Okay. Now, and at Genentech, you had ended up at, was it the VP level? I was. Okay. I was uh, head of regulatory and I was here head of product development. I oversaw the overall development portfolio of drugs. Okay, so this is a natural progression. You, you rise to VP at Genentech. You get your hands dirty on, you know, actually developing drugs and taking them through the regulatory process. Then you get exposed to this other side of the business at Theravance, which uh, is company building and the external facing in some respects, senior leadership. Exactly. Um, yep. And uh, that that's a nice interim step to become a CEO for the first time. Uh, you mentioned jo- right. George Rath. I mean, the legendary uh, founding CEO of Amgen, uh, uh, rest in peace, George. Um, but he, um, h- how did you come to uh, work with him? So George's sons uh, uh, were both uh, venture guys. They, they had dabbled in venture and had both tried to recruit me out of Genentech uh, to start companies with them or to work in companies that they had been part of creating. I never did it. Uh, but I kind of became, I guess, a bit of a conversation in the Rathman family. When George Rathman um, had actually been talked uh, by one of his sons into stepping into the CEO role of this company in Sunnyvale called HiSeq, uh, uh, I think George said, I'm, I need a young guy that can come in and help me. George was probably uh, in his late 70s. Or, or, or at the time, and his health was, was, was starting to have some challenges. So he actually called me up out of the blue. It was a cold call. Um, he was also working with Larry Setrin as a headhunter, and Larry had been head of resources, human resources at Genentech. So Larry knew me uh, as an employee at Genentech, and he was now hired by George, and George's sons knew me. So there was a lot of kind of connections, as there often are, uh, in biotech. Um, and I'll never forget, George and I met for the first time in a little cafe called Bucks down in Woodside. Oh, famous uh, Bucks. George, <laughs> famous Bucks. And uh, he brought his lovely wife, uh, Joy, uh, with him. So I really interviewed with George and Joy uh, for the first time. And I, I got to tell you, when I walked out of that restaurant, I said, you know, I love this guy like uh, like a father. I mean, he's He's obviously brilliant. He's obviously enormously successful, and he could teach me uh, a lot. And he operates with a similar set of standards, similar work ethic to me. So I I fell in love with George Rathman. The company had a lot of problems, by the way, but I felt like George and I could take on anything together. So was he still the CEO, and did you have like some kind of interim COO kind of role, or did you come right in to run it? 
That's exactly what we did. We, um, uh, we agreed that George would be the CEO. I would come in as chief operating officer with the plan that I'd be promoted when he had confidence. Literally, one month into the job, George walks into my office. And you remember, he was a towering man. So yeah. he was sitting, standing high above me. And he says, I've made a decision. And I said, what are you talking about, George? He said, you're the CEO. You're the CEO of this company. I, I, I can see it already. So I, it was an interim position, but it didn't last very long. Okay. I became CEO in about a month. And by this, you're about 40 at this point. We've already covered your, you, you had uh, laid the foundation to do this kind of work. It's high seek, Nuvello. I don't want to spend a lot of time around this. This was like the genomics boom, wasn't it? Like, so your stock, That's right. stock is going crazy up and down from one day to the next. Um, yeah. Th- this is a pretty wild ride, a baptism by fire, I can imagine. Um it is. It is. What was the big learning you took from that first time really, uh, you know, having everything on your shoulders? Well, I mean, I think from George, I learned a lot uh, about, uh, number one, um, how you really are there for your employees, how you're there for your investors, uh, George is probably one of the most unselfish people I've ever met in my life. So I, I, I really learned from him that the CEO is, it's number one, it's an honor uh, to be given the position. Uh, uh, and it's something that you really have to take very seriously uh, in terms of your responsibility to the patients. And George was very, very focused on the patients. And I've tried to model that. Uh, he was really just an amazing uh, steward of looking out for the employees in the company. Uh, and I've tried to certainly model that. And, and of course, uh, he was legendary in terms of how he was able to generate, you know, a good turn, a good return for the investors uh, who, who had faith in him. So I've tried to really model myself after George, focusing on those three entities particularly. I've heard the stories about George from his time at Icos. You know, I'm in Seattle, and that was a company here in the 90s where he was previously. And he, he apparently had a binder with all the names and photos and backgrounds of all the employees. And he would take it home at night and memorize it. So, like, he knew everybody's name in the company, even as it grew to, like, four or 500 people. That, that was important to him. So... Just one little anecdote. Um, okay, so you're, you're there at Novello for a while. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these next steps. I know you did a, t- a stint at Onyx um, when that company developed Kyprolis for multiple myeloma, the proteasome inhibitor. So, like, you, 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 you got your hands on, you know, some successful drugs, both at Genentech and then again at Onyx. Uh, and, th- and this is the funny part, because I remember me- the one time I met you at an investor conference, this would have been about five years ago, you had just started with Global Blood Therapeutics. And, and the story that you were telling, I don't know if you still do, <laughs> was that you were retired. And I kind of looked at you like, wait a minute. Now, you're like mid-50s at this point. You had come out of Onyx, been successful. People don't just retire. <laughs> I mean, you, you definitely had some mileage left on the tires, I thought. Um, but you were brought out of the retirement by this opportunity. Tell me, how, how did that how did that come about? Well, I was pretty serious about retirement. I mean, I, I, I appreciate and, 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 and love your comment about mileage on the tires, but I had um, been pretty intense uh, my whole life from, you know, from a kid through Haverford, through Yale, the Mass General, Genentech, 
uh, Theravance and, and HiSeq. It was all basically going as fast as you can go, taking every curve as hard as you could take. And that does wear you down. So when I retired, and it, and it also has an impact on your family. So when I retired, I really did feel like my devotion and dedication to uh, employees, patients, and investors over and beyond most of the time my family, unfortunately, was something that I needed to recoup. So when I retired, I was serious about retiring. Um, and in fact, when I was first approached about the GBT position, I actually said no. Um, and even though I was very conflicted by uh, a real burning desire to help sickle cell patients, I just couldn't tell my family I was going to go back to work again. Um, so I made a compromise and I agreed to take a board position. Um, and after about a year of being on the board and watching the data uh, generate, particularly the, 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 the data in the sickle mice, where we were showing that these sickle mice, within days of being treated with Voxellator, began to look normal. Um, I called my wife and I said, because um, I, was, I was actually on a trip after I saw that data, I called my wife uh, from Seattle and I said, honey, I'd really love to talk to you about whether or not this idea of doing one more company, because it's really something that's never going to come along again. I'm never going to get a chance to help sickle cell patients again, probably. And I think this is something that I should consider. And, you know, we had a family meeting uh, with our two daughters and um, we talked about it. And in the end, as is often the case, our daughter stood up and said, this is a no brainer. You know, dad, you've got to do this. You have got to do this. So they were in the end very unselfish because I had spent a couple of years of really just focusing on my family. And, um, that, that hasn't been the case since I've become CEO, but, but they understood that if I did this, it would be all in and it would be travel and it would be oftentimes prioritizing um, work over, over family issues. And that's, that's the only way to do these jobs. Maybe you just needed a break and recharge the batteries a bit. <laughs> yeah, and I think I got that. And I, I got to tell you that I'm incredibly uh, energetic uh, and excited about what I do at GBT. And my wife is uh, thrilled uh, that I'm doing this. But I do think that uh, she's got a bit of a clock and one day she's going to expect me to come back, although there's, there's uh, no urgency to have me uh, not complete the job of what we're, what we're committed to here at GBT. So GBT, for those unfamiliar, is a company founded by Third Rock Ventures, uh, based there in San Francisco. And the, the asset at the time was Voxelator. It was called something different. But the, let me take a crack at the science here. I mean, the, the idea here is that this is a disease-modifying drug for sickle cell. It is a, it's an oral, once-daily small molecule that's made to bind with the hemoglobin that's produced. That's right. So that it has higher affinity to grab onto the oxygen that gets into the bloodstream. So, and, and, and I guess once it binds, it doesn't, we think, polymerize. So if it doesn't go through those steps to enter that sickle, that hard sickle, clumpy 
shape that is the the hallmark of the disease that causes all the problems the the ane- the anemia the the clotting the strokes the intense pain all that stuff you can you can mitigate this if you just kind of hit it upstream with a small molecule is this is this basically the gist okay so you had some mouse data uh, and you thought all right, this is this is what I know how to do. Uh, design clinical trials, round up the the financing, the the investigators, the employees, everything to like make this a drug. That's right. That's your mandate. Yep. What was the first step? Uh, well, the first step for me was to um, assess my team because I, I've learned over the years that um, uh, as a leader. Um, uh, your your first responsibility is to make sure that you've got the people around you uh, to be successful. Uh, so I did a lot of looking at uh, who was on the team, um, assessing if they were the right people to accomplish the task in front of us. Um, and um, if they weren't, uh, making changes and bringing in people uh, that, that could do it. So that was uh, step number one. Um, uh, step number two in these companies is making sure that uh, the financial capabilities are strong. Um, you know, these companies spend an enormous amount of money. Drug development, drug innovation is phenomenally expensive and risky. So getting more money into the company. So I think within six months of coming to the company, uh, I raised another $50 million and brought in very high integrity, very uh, blue chip uh, investors like Fidelity, Wellington, Deerfield. Um, so getting the team together, uh, getting um, uh, more resources for the company to build on were, were important first steps. And I think the third thing was really making sure that we were going about the development of Voxelator correctly. Um, uh, because that's ultimately how you're going to build value in these companies. And, uh, and and people are dying. People are dying with these diseases that I've primarily worked on. So my sense has been people are dying um, and you can't do this too fast. Um, uh, you don't want to make mistakes because that costs you time. But, but you do want to have an enormous sense of urgency and you want to drive uh, really in a way that is um, – Fast is based upon the available science. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the molecule, how we develop it, uh, the team, uh, as well as getting the resources. Maybe this is a good time to rattle off some of the statistics about sickle cell. Uh, 100,000 people estimated to suffer from this in the U.S. It's a monogenic disorder. So it's it's a mutation in a single gene. Uh, for making hemoglobin, right? So this is one of these. This is one of these things that gets people excited in the era of gene editing because it's it's more amenable, more tractable. We think to a lot a, a lot of the tools that we now have in the toolbox. CRISPR among them. Gene therapy is another. 
Uh, but that's not what you're talking about, Gene. You've got an oral small molecule, which you know has its own advantages for practical purposes. But um, you know, this is a pretty, this is a big need. I mean, people suffer from anemia. The uh, these uh, you have what they call these vasoocclusive crises, where <laughs> it's a fancy medical term, right? For uh, you know, your blood vessels getting you know clogged up and you know causing intense pain or ultimately sometimes stroke leads you to the emergency room leads you to all kinds of pain medications time suffering anguish drag on productivity these patients die typically in their 40s 50s maybe at life expectancy of 60 this is a big need there's not been uh, much this is all I mean <laughs> kind of like programmed in like to your company DNA, I suppose, at this point. But this is a pretty strong mission to to get to work in the day, in the morning. Yeah. I mean, and and I got to tell you, everybody in this company is mission driven. Um, We think about these patients every day Um, and everybody in the company has an urgency to do something powerful for for these patients. And just to put uh, uh, an emphasis on what you were saying, this disease is due to a single amino acid change on one protein, hemoglobin. All of our hemoglobin is contained inside of the red cell. So the way this disease hurts you is first by killing the red cell. And that sets forth a cascade of problems. So what we've demonstrated with this drug is that if you take it orally once a day, the red cells stop dying means the disease is being arrested. Um, I, I've likened this to HIV. HIV was a very complicated disease with a lot of manifestations, but at the core, there was this virus. And if we could suppress that virus sufficiently, everything should go away. By analogy, sickle cell is polymerizing our hemoglobin sticking together. If we could stop the hemoglobin, from sticking together sufficiently, the disease should go away. And that's what Voxelator is all about. Now, as a small molecule, uh, you got to get the right dose. And I suppose it's got to distribute really well uh, through your whole system because, I mean, we make a lot of red blood cells <laughs> every day. We make and, a lot. And, and yeah. you, you, so there's a lot of hemoglobin to be bound to. You got to make sure that you, you, you bind to enough of it, right? That's right. That's right. So we estimated that we need to bind to about uh, 30% of the hemoglobin to, 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 to effectively stop the disease. And where we've landed is uh, a dose that we are now, uh, uh, that, that, that we're now filing with the Food and Drug Administration for approval. That dose binds to about 25% of the hemoglobin. So there may be more efficacy on the table, but the data that we've seen with the 1500 dose, which binds about 24% of the hemoglobin has been remarkable. Um, And we feel very confident that this dose is going to help a lot of patients. We think the FDA agrees with us, and that's why we're trying to get this drug on the market at the dose that may not be at the maximum benefit of the drug, but it's certainly a lot of benefit that we think 
we can begin to provide very quickly. It's always a balance for the, your therapeutic index, you know, the, the efficacy and safety. Uh, and your, your adverse event profile looks pretty good at the 1,500 milligram dose? It looks very good. Yeah, it looks very good. I, I think you know, um, Luke, that the data were the lead publication in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in June. It was simultaneously featured as one of the top abstracts at the European Hematology Association meeting. And the reason that the, the billing has been so good is that this is an opportunity to provide what we think could be tremendous efficacy with a very, very, very safe uh, um, uh, uh, therapy. Well, let's talk a little bit about the data uh, because you've presented that now. Uh, I think it was 274 patients in the HOPE study, uh, and a, a majority of them got uh, above the one gram per deciliter of blood increase in their hemoglobin after 24 weeks. Right. It, they got up quick. They got up quickly within a couple weeks and stayed there yep. for the full 24 weeks. And they went from a baseline, which is pretty darn anemic, of like maybe eight and a half grams per deciliter up to close to 10. That's correct. You got it. That's a big change. Now, when you are blazing a trail, though, like nobody has run like a serious sickle cell trial like this, uh, and you had to compare it against baseline uh, hydroxyurea, which is commonly used, um, the endpoints are, are an issue. So like we can say getting your hemoglobin up, that should improve like the symptoms of anemia, the weakness, the fatigue, the quality of life should be up. Uh, we know this from lots of other settings, but like, uh, is this a surrogate uh, for something else that we should be measuring that's like really important to the patients or to the healthcare system? Yes, yes. So hemoglobin uh, is considered to be a surrogate but, but it's a very unusual surrogate um, in that hemoglobin is a vital constituent to survival. If we don't have enough hemoglobin, we will die. We will stroke. Uh, that's been demonstrated uh, well beyond sickle cell disease, that there's a high rate of dementia, uh, white matter loss. Even with people with hemoglobins below 13 grams per deciliter, that, that's about twice for most sickle cell patients. That's almost twice what most sickle cell patients uh, uh, enjoy. So hemoglobin, while it is a surrogate, it's, it's a vital constituent uh, for survival. Uh, so, it's, so, so, so it's not just a surrogate, it's something beyond that. But because the red cell destruction is the first thing the polymerization does, if a drug is fundamentally modifying the disease, the first thing you would expect to see is the red cell survival improving and the red cell health improving. And that's what we are doing with this drug. Um, so if you think the disease starts in the red cell and then as it kills the red cells, you develop a range of other problems, the best way to solve the range of other problems is to go back and solve the first problem, which is destruction of the red cell. So that's why we and the FDA are so confident about this. So you can count those pretty easily. Red cell counts with a, with a flow cytometer. Everybody's got that. Yep. That's easy, quantifiable, consistent. Same thing with the hemoglobin counts. Um, you can, yes. it's accessible. You take a blood draw, you, you, know, you measure the amount of hemoglobin that's in there. Uh, there there's, it's, it's objective. 
Um, yes. You don't have to like look at an x-ray and squint and say, well, that tumor shrank or maybe it didn't. Um, uh, so that that's uh, a positive from a, a practicality yes. clinical trial conducting perspective. Uh, but uh, I mentioned earlier the vaso-occlusive crises. These are uh, the events that uh, cause yes. the extreme pain in patients end up, you know, they're calling the ambulance and being rushed to the emergency room and getting emergency treatment. Uh, this is like as a society, as a health insurance system, those are things that we would focus on and, and like to reduce. Uh, and boy, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice if we had a drug that could reduce the rate of those crises? And I know you looked at this yes. in the HOPE study. It was not the primary endpoint, but what did you find there? We found that um, there are fewer events uh, on uh, patients on drug versus on placebo, uh, but the statistical significance of that difference is not there. Now, that's not a surprise to us because the study was not designed to show statistical significance, but, but the study does appear to be showing actually what you would expect, um, and I'll, I'll put this into perspective. Um, the first thing that sickling hemoglobin does is kill the red cell. And downstream, you get organ uh, dysfunction, uh, organ loss, stroke. You get, you get inflammation in your vessels. You get stickiness, a variety of cells. And that leads to vasoclusion. And then down the road, even, you get death. Um, if you change something upstream the rate at which you would affect things is based on that cascade. So the last thing that you're going to modify uh, is something like mortality, because that's the last thing, that's the farthest endpoint out there. Um, but the first thing you'd uh, impact is the red cell um, uh, survival and the red cell population and the red cell health. So we're seeing exactly what we would expect to see. I think long-term, we will augment vaso-occlusive crisis. But even if we didn't, it doesn't really matter because we also need to protect the brains of children with sickle cell disease. We need to protect their vital organs because if we don't, they're going to die. Even if they weren't having vaso-occlusive crisis, they would die from this accumulated injury. And that's where the hemoglobin is so important. We know that it takes red cells to deliver adequate oxygen to the tissues to make sure that the brain is nourished with enough oxygen, that our cognitive function uh, remains good, um, that we don't have overt strokes and silent strokes, uh, probably somewhere in the range of a third of sickle cell kids will have a silent ischemic event in their brain in their first decade of life, oh. even if they're ha having no crises. So, Voxellator is really number one focused on that, but we do think we're going to change crises, uh, but, but it's really, really, really imperative that we provide adequate red cell health and number to allow oxygenation of tissues in order to provide organ survival and patient survival. Okay. Now, I know you mentioned children, and this original study that you're taking to the FDA now is in, I believe, 12 years old and above, so adolescents and, and adults. Yeah. And you uh, have trials in the queue for younger kids. You're going to progressively move it all the way down to, I think, nine months. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. With the idea that you can prevent some of these, uh, you know, downstream damages that just accumulate over the patient's lifetime. That, that's the idea. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the idea is to actually do what we do in HIV. So when a kid is born with HIV, we start them on therapy very young, and they never get sick. They never get sick. And that's what we'd like to do for sickle cell. We'd like to uh, optimize voxelator and maybe additional things that we can make in the, in the form of simple pills that you take um, starting at nine months and, and, and provide the kid with a perfectly normal life. That's, that's what we're shooting for. Okay, that's a pretty big uh, lofty dream. It's going to take a while uh, to run those trials. Uh, now, and but you are going to uh, enter the market. You're going to have to start selling this thing uh, to fulfill the ultimate potential of this drug. Uh, you're having conversations now with payers. What does the payer mix for the sickle cell population look like for private payer versus CMS? It's roughly about 65% government payers. Uh, the breakdown there is about 50% Medicaid, about 15% will be uh, on Medicare through disability. Um, the private payers are probably around 25%, and then there will be a, a few uh, percent uh, that are uninsured um, uh, or are private pay. Okay. Now, you... You're not yet on the market, so I'm sure you're not ready to talk to me about what the price is going to be. <laughs> but what uh, can you talk about a range, or what are these? What what kind of conversations are coming up in your your talks with payers? Well, I think the number one thing that uh, 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 comes up is that these patients are already very expensive to care for, uh, because as you said. They, on average, live to be around 40 years old. Um, men typically die around 40, early 40s. Women uh, 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 tend to get a little bit further into their mid-40s. So there is a lifetime where these individuals, unfortunately, are getting sick and requiring resources. It's been estimated the average cost for sickle cell patients is about $280,000 per year on average. So we're already spending a lot of money and we're getting terrible outcomes. So our position is, what if we introduced a drug which, 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 which suddenly dramatically changes the outcome? So now you've got people that are not sick, not hopefully costing us $280,000 to care for complications and problems, but instead we've got people now with normal cognitive function uh, that are more likely to generate income uh, and to pay taxes. The estimated lost income per sickle cell patients is estimated to be about $700,000 per life. It's a huge so drag a very, on productivity. This is a huge drag on our society. So there is a wonderful opportunity if we have a therapy that's changing the disease for us to obviously have a cost associated with the disease, but that drug will be offsetting a lot of costs that we're already eating, uh, along with pain and suffering and premature death. 
I listened to uh, a Wedbush conference recently where the analysts uh, apparently have a wide range of possible prices. They're they're estimating somewhere between forty thousand to one hundred twenty thousand a patient. Um, <laughs> I, like I said, you're not ready to talk about this, but um, uh, are, are they thinking along the right lines? I think that um, uh, that they're basing their prices somewhat on on, on prevalence. Um, you know, the reality is making a drug is very expensive, as we all know. And if there are a smaller number of patients, companies typically need to charge a bit more per patient in order to make the economics work. Uh, so that's what we call prevalence-based pricing. If you look in the United States at drugs where they're about $100,000 a year, they tend to be in that Kind of eighty to maybe one hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty thousand dollar range. We have not set a price, uh, but prevalence-based pricing kind of gets you into that range. Uh, but quite frankly, uh, this drug is offsetting a lot of cost. It's providing a lot of value. So I think what we want to do is make sure that we're very thoughtful about understanding the value of this drug the value that the drug is providing, and price uh, obviously within those boundaries. So we're taking this super seriously because we have a lot of constituencies that we want to be respectful to, the patient, uh, the payers, um, uh, uh, as well as, you know, the providers. We want to make this work for everyone. Last thing I want to ask you, Ted, because I know you have to go. I know you hired a chief commercial officer, David Johnson, out of Gilead. Gilead obviously That's has right. a lot of experience with HIV and HCV, uh, pricing and access uh, controversies. Uh, I'm sure he's thinking hard and sharpening that pencil on this one. Um, but you know, the other thing too is that the company name is Global Blood, Global Blood yes. Therapeutics, yes. and you know, uh, sickle cell. There's obviously a lot of people in Africa um, who I would yes. imagine suffer from this. Maybe we don't even know how many. I just came back from Africa with a whole team of biotech people to climb Kilimanjaro, so I've been thinking about this. Uh, what's your What's your thoughts on how to get this thing widely accessible after this thing is FDA approved at a price that people can stomach over there? Well, I'll just start with this. We're going to get it done. Uh, that that's one of the commitments that we are very serious about is that this is a global problem. We know that in order for our company to stay in business, we need to generate some revenues. We're not going to generate the revenues in countries that are as poor as Nigeria and Ghana, for example, where there's a huge population. So we've got to make sure that we can be a sustainable company by uh, making the drug available in the U.S., where, where, where obviously there is a capacity to pay for the drug. But ultimately, we are very committed to creating an infrastructure and making the drug available in areas of the world, or areas of the world where the capacity to pay is very low. Uh, Gilead has done this with HIV. Other companies have done this uh, as well. And we're actually already putting a lot of work and a lot of effort in making sure that we're able to get that done. I, I appreciate the question, Luke, and we're very serious about that. Ted Love, best of luck. When this thing gets approved by the FDA, it's going to be a big, big deal for not just your company, but for patients and the healthcare system. Uh, best of luck. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. 
Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.